morning and welcome to Wavemakers with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Tom. Normally, I'm joined by my co-host and wife, Janet Sherberger, but she's homesick today, so I am flying solo. Answering the phones for us today is the happiest Lightning fan I know, John Dunn. If you want to talk hockey with John or join our conversation today, call us at 813-239-9663. He'll get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. Today's guest has been making waves in the Tampa Bay art scene for decades. Paul Wilborn is a former newspaper reporter, a founder of both the Artists and Writers Ball and Guavaline. He was Tampa's art czar under Mayor Pam Maiorio and has been running the Palladium in downtown St. Pete for, I thought it was only a decade, but it's been 15 years. Who knew? His collection of short stories set in Ybor City won the Gold Medal Award for Fiction with the Florida Book Awards, and now he's out with his first novel, Florida Hustle. I should mention that uh, both Jane and I have been friends with Paul for decades, going back to our Tampa Tribune days in the 1980s, not to mention myriad musical moments with Paul we've enjoyed over the years. It's really great to have you, Paul. Welcome to Wavemakers. Tom, great to be here. Thank you. I've enjoyed your show. Well, thanks very much. I'm glad you can be a Wavemaker because you have been a Wavemaker for so <laughs> long. Um, I noticed you got a rave review in the Tampa Bay Times on Sunday for this new novel of yours. They called it, Khaled Bancroft, the book editor, called it a warmly weird adventure in the Sunshine State with humor and heart. Tell us about that book. What's it about? I will. And I'm so excited to get a rave review because there's no guarantees in this world. No guarantees. You know, when you put yourself out there in the arts, I I have been beat up a little bit before too. So it's kind of nice to get those raves, which is good. Uh, I had this idea when I was living in Los Angeles almost 20 years ago and kind of was trying to write a screenplay. So it started that way. But I was interested in what if a kid, everyone thinks he's going to do something bad, but really he's not doing anything bad but all these repercussions. So my young hero is 17. He's uh, obsessed with a scream queen because this is the 80s and that's what was happening all over Florida. They were making bad B movies uh, after the success of Friday the 13th. So it's set in that world, but it's not a horror book. He's obsessed with a scream queen. She's making a movie in the Everglades and it's about his attempts to get to her. It's a road journey. It's a road trip story. It's a it's a love story in some ways. It is. It it's really a little is. weird on the love uh, side. Love is a little weird, Tom. You but, know. Yeah, but you know, I, I was wondering, you know, Florida Hustle. Why the name Florida Hustle? And then I realized as I'm reading the book, they're all hustlers in this book. Everybody's hustling, and I honestly think it's kind of a good description of Florida because Florida has was founded on a hustle. You know, the land grabs and all those land deals that continued for years, decades. And in this book, as I noticed, everybody's working an angle from the richest people down to the poorest folks. And that's kind of the history of Florida in many ways. So it, it kind of came together. I didn't intend it that way, but when I got to the end, I said, Florida Hustle, that kind of fits. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's perfect. Um, so are you stuck in the 80s, Paul? Because your first collection of short stories... <laughs> Was stuck in the eighties, and now this book is, it, is nineteen eighty two. Nineteen eighty two, 
And honestly, right after Ronald Reagan has been shot by John Hinckley, it kind of required that because I wanted my kid to be. I want people to think he was. He's obsessed with a movie star. I wanted him to think he might do something bad, uh, just like Hinckley did. But really, for me, I like the distance between now and then. It lets you make parallels and lets you uh, sort of see things from a distance. I mean, the Florida that I look at in the 80s sort of predicts what's happening now. And the book, there are people arguing over Ronald Reagan, you know, good or bad. And it sort of sets up the dialogue that we're in right now. So I feel like having that little distance just gives me a chance to, to explore contemporary themes in a, in a nice way without being right on the money. Well, I mentioned that I have known you for decades, but I didn't know you were a horror fan. Or are you not a horror oh, fan? No, I absolutely am. Uh, and I used to have to find dates to go to horror movies. I had a friend whose uh, wife loved them, so she and I would go to the horror movies because I always loved them. My wife now will, is in them, but she won't watch them. So when she gets a cast in a horror movie... I, would, I, I don't blame her. I recommend you <laughs> she not watch them because she's very she scary. She does bad stuff. She's very scary. But I've always enjoyed them, uh, and that sort of led to one reason to set this in there. But also... In Ebor, when I was there, and all my friends were right out of college, actor friends, they all got killed in the woods in these bad B-movies being shot in Florida. Florida was the home of a ton of bad movies that were shot in the 80s, mostly horror, mostly slasher. Makes sense. We have lots of swamps and woods and all sorts old, of crazy campsites places. campsites and yep, fish, yep. You know, fish shacks. Now, it's also set in Palm Beach, mm -hmm. uh, where I think you lived for a while, right? Uh, that's one reason I set it there, because... Palm Beach and West Palm Beach. My brother came down and lived with me, and he ended up staying on Palm Beach for about five years. I spent a lot of time reporting there. But my you were working for the newspaper there, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. my first night uh, in West Palm Beach, I didn't know any better, so I checked into this little motel not far from the newspaper in downtown. And at 10 o'clock, the place was empty. I had to be at work at 5 in the morning. When I came out at 4 in the morning, the joint was jumping. It was like a sex <laughs> motel. I didn't realize it. And so I kind of used that in the book. Uh, you had to be at work at 5 o'clock in the morning, I should mention, because you were working for something called an afternoon newspaper. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't for, know if people for you know kids what that out is. There, anyway. right. that yeah, for was, you kids out there. Yeah, for you kids out there, you had to be at work really early, and the, the paper came out just in time for Dad to have his martini put his uh, feet up and... Yeah. While while the wife cooked dinner, which is why after newspapers, yeah. that's why they went away. Yeah. But I was off work by noon. It was kind of incredible. So, so yeah. when did you get this idea? Uh, how, how long has this been germinating? Really, I say I was living in Los Angeles, working for the Associated Press in uh, the early two thousands, and uh, trying to write screenplays because you were in L.A. and that's what everybody you have to. It's real required if you move to L.A. to write a screenplay. And so this was a screenplay idea. I had a, some writer friends that we were trying things. And I wrote this originally as a screenplay, put it down, and after the Ebor book, I wanted something new, and I picked it up. Always loved the idea, and I started putting flesh on it as a uh, prose book, and it really came to life. Interesting. Usually, uh, uh, a screenplay starts as a novel, and right. you went the other way around. Well, if you go to L.A., there are a million dead screenplays sitting in every producer's place that's just going nowhere. And what I realized is, write a book. And let somebody else do the screenplay. Well, after you picked it up and started working on it again, yeah. um, what was your process? Not, I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but I always find it fascinating because writing is a very lonely process, right? I mean, and you're a very social person, but where were you writing it? And, 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 and what was the process for you? 
Well, the truth is, I cannot sit in a desk at home and write. I was a news guy. And as you know, Tom, a newsroom was this crazy, cacophonous place that stuff happening all around you. But I learned to focus. And so I really write best in like a coffee shop or someplace where people are milling about, but I can't know anybody. I go to coffee shops where no one knows me, hopefully. Otherwise, you will be constantly interrupted. Yeah, but I like the din, I like the noise, and I can really focus and write. And the other part of the question is, I I don't plot things out. I, I get into a book, I've got a few ideas, and I see where it takes me. I'm what they call a pants guy. Uh, you know, there's plotters and pantsers. You sit down, and a pantser just lets it see where it goes. Yeah, uh, based on the characters that you create. Right, you right. create the characters, and then they, they take you places if things are going well. So let's talk about one of your main characters, and let's face it, I mean, in my opinion, he is the most intriguing and colorful <laughs> character, uh, Kavanaugh Riley. Right. Um, I noticed that the book is also dedicated to Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh Murphy. Kavanaugh Murphy. Tell us about Kavanaugh Murphy. Well, I was writing a column for the Tribune, and Kavanaugh lived in a flophouse motel on Nebraska Avenue, but he was a brilliant guy who had just dropped out of society. He had had a big job in Georgia politics, and he just dropped out, lived on the, not really on the streets, because he had a little bit of a pension, a little bit of a Social Security, and he wrote letters to newspapers and would call up reporters and complain about things, and we got to be good friends. I visited him a lot, and he was this wise philosopher fool who uh, was always nursing uh, the young crack you know, Horace from Nebraska Avenue back to health. And well, somebody had to do somebody that. Somebody had to do it, and, and he fell in love with them in the course of it. And after a few months, they would leave him, take all his money, and he would be heartbroken. And so I kind of— This sounds a little like Kevin O'Reilly, i got to say. It sounds a lot like Kevin O'Reilly, yeah. who uh, has a lot of, uh, a lot of Kav- this Kavanaugh in him. But most of what he says and does in this book is, came out of my head. And— um I could see this character continuing if perhaps there's another Florida hustle that comes along. I, uh, I don't know if you got any thoughts along that, Paul. Well, I keep trying to get rid of him, but he keeps coming back, and everybody's suggesting he comes back. I had a note today from my friend from Guatemala who says, you know, characters like this always ended up in Antigua, Guatemala. A lot of expats, you should go down to Antigua and set it there. So, I don't know, Kavanaugh may just be back by popular demand. Another... Um Part of the book is focused on one of my favorite uh, abandoned Florida uh, roadside attractions, the Cypress Knee Museum. And I was one of the many traveling Florida reporters who sees the Cypress Knee Museum and goes, there's a story there. Went in, met Tom Gaskins. He was showing me how he drank um, creosote. Creosote. The man would not only... Huffett, he was drinking that stuff. He tried to get me to drink it, he too. He drank it on Johnny Carson. They flew him out to L.A., and he actually drank it on I Johnny Carson. Barefoot. Uh, yeah, barefoot. Well, he put his shoes on for Johnny Carson. Oh, he did? Okay. Yeah. But okay. he was barefoot He was barefoot all the time. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. was another of those reporters. And uh, and it, I, the book needed a middle. It needed an end you know, from the screenplay, and that seemed like a perfect middle spot. And I had spent a lot of time there, so I had my characters show up, and I added a motel. Tom never had a motel, but but uh, he had these. I don't great know if you museums. could get anybody to stay at a motel there, but it, it was kind of like the Bates Motel. All these, you know. <laughs> but that was Florida. I mean, what I like about this era, you ask again about the '80s, 
Florida had not gone pop yet. I mean, there was Disney World, but Florida was still had these roadside attractions. The middle of the state was still desolate, mostly. And so you were in that transition period right before, and the Seminoles, you know, we end up at a Seminole Indian place, and they haven't even built the first casino yet. So it's kind of presages all of that stuff. Right. Which I like. Um, and I'm not sure, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but there is there are motorcycles involved. There are There's a boardwalk. There's, uh, there's it, lots it, things, of fun stuff. Things yeah. get very Alligators, interesting. Alligators, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the Everglades, Tom. <laughs> it does remind me a little bit of on the road, it, you know. And, and 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 you know, you have you have you've got a, a, a real life character who inspires this. So uh, very similar, I think, in many ways. To, I think so. I think so. And who's an outcast from society in many ways by choice, right? And uh, and they're in a great convertible cruising through. You know the heart of old Florida, and so that's was fun for me. Once they got in that convertible, the book just kind of wrote itself, Tom. <laughs> now wait a minute. As an editor, I would always get hit if I would say that to you, <laughs> because I was Paul's editor for a while. Paul, it's just the story's just going to write itself. Go that's away. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, you incorporate something in the book that I'm not sure I've ever seen in a novel, which is uh, storyboards. Right. Not real storyboards, but uh, what what made you think of uh, including those? Well, what gets Michael, my main character, in trouble is that he sends these storyboards to Dawn to an address he got for her in L.A. That and she dies in every movie, so these are he thinks she should die better. So he sends her these storyboards about how she should die, and always includes a little note saying in red ink saying this is how you should really die, which gets people convinced that he wants to kill her. That would kind of freak you out. So I needed. I thought the storyboards would be a good addition, and I uh, there's a wonderful artist who grew up in St. Petersburg named Eva Avenue. She's in New York now, and I asked her to write these, draw these, but I said don't make them too good. I want it to look like a 17 year old kid who's not. A graphic, not a comic artist. So they're kind of rough, they're fun, but uh, you see some of what he's sending to Dawn, and I thought visually it, it's fun. It breaks up the book. Speaking of artists, your cover is uh, designed by a St. Pete artist. Tell me about that. You know, covers are the hardest thing, and they can really make or break a book. And Chad Mize is, to me, the he walks this great line between fine artist and commercial artist, and I just loved his work, and I went to him early, and uh, and he designed it. We used and the color pattern is great. It kind of looks like beach balls, except very abstract. He's so hot right now. He's designing for Coach. He's doing all this stuff since, you know, I had him do this. I probably couldn't afford it. Good now. thing you locked him down I early. Got him right? I got that but early discount. Yeah. Uh, if you want to join our conversation today, call us at eight one three two three nine nine six six three. That uh, happy lightning fan, John Dunn. If you're nice to him, we'll let you in. Ask your question. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. And we do have an email from Bubba who points out that uh, Riley reminds him of Skink. You know, there's been some... For those those who don't know Skink... Right. uh, Tim uh, Dorsey? uh, No. uh, Skink is... is Yes. uh, Carl Hyacinth. Carl Hyacinth. And Carl, a, a recurring character right. in many of his crazy novels. And Carl was a friend of mine. It, I haven't seen him in a long time, but we were reporter buddies. And uh, and then he really pioneered this Florida genre. So I don't think his he's a little more of a satirist than I am. But he opened the door to Florida, and then so many good writers have followed. Karen Russell with Swamplandia. Uh, 
Kristen Arnett with Mostly Dead Things. And so you're getting this cross between crazy Florida and a little more of a literary type thing, which is what I hope, where I hope my book falls. Speaking of which, because we have, we have authors who live in the Tampa Bay area. What is the writing? Is there such a thing as a writing scene, Paul? We talk about the art scene, you know, where artists get together and they, they uh, kind of riff off of each other, inspired by each other. Uh, what about writers? Does the same kind of thing happen with that? I, I mean, I, yeah, you know, it's writers tend to work uh, alone, but what's great is, and what's helped me with both my books is that I found a, a writer's group. We get together once a week, and they're all working writers who are getting things published, and and we bring the new stuff we've written and get feedback. And for my book, they've been incredible. I have a character in here who I read about her, and they said, oh, well, she's totally an alcoholic. I'm going, oh, my God, she's an alcoholic. And that helped. They In, a, in the Ebor book, I had a character who kept gaining weight because she was eating her way through Ebor City, and I read about her, and they said, oh, she's totally pregnant. And of course she was pregnant. So having these writers who you really respect uh, give you feedback is good. And there's, you know, with Tombolo Books, Oxford Exchange, we've now kind of got a literary scene. You can, I'm doing talks at, at both places, and uh, it's going really well. So you've got a support group now, I think. And you have St. Pete Press, which is publishing local authors. Yeah, I mean, that's, and I that's actually help publish it, right? I helped create that. I went to Joe Hamilton and said, you know, I got this book of short stories, and you've published books for money. Let's do a St. Pete Press. And he loved the idea. And now they've done 15 or 20 books, and this, I'm doing my second book with them because I think indie is the way to go uh, in this world. It's not so great anymore to be at a big major house as a middle grade or less known author. So with this, I'm invested. We, uh, you know, we share everything 50-50. And so everything I do to promote this book comes back to me in a good way. Oh, that's good. And, uh, and with the world today, you can get your book out to everybody um, you know, without being one of the big five. Speaking presses. of which, you're having an event tonight? I am, yeah. So tell us about that. Uh, Tom Below Books is doing a, a book release, and I'll be there with Craig Pippen, another one of my colleagues uh-huh. from journalism, and another your colleague Times, uh, from reporter. the Saint Pete Times. Another one of reporters who used to work for me. I had to, I ran them. I run everybody out of the you business. Run out, I, don't, yeah. I don't know what it is. And he's become a real Florida he has expert, yeah. and yeah. so we're going to have fun with that. We're doing it at Seven C Music, which is an incredible guitar store on South Twenty Second around Fifth Avenue, and uh, it's holds 150. They've got beer and wine, so it's going to be fun. And they want Tom Below thought. And I rightly, there's going to be more people than they could hold. Oh, so we're well, doing that. Let's hope there is. Yeah. And no, we're doing, so it's not a Tom Below Books, but they are sponsoring it. They're sponsoring it. it, and you can get the book there, and I'll sign it. Also doing Oxford Exchange on Father's Day, Sunday at 3.30. And, you know, if you read the book, uh, Fathers and Daughters, Fathers and Sons is a big theme in this book, the yes, relationship. So absolutely. Yeah. It's going to be good. And we're also going to show on the 22nd at Greenlight Cinema a horror movie from the book, uh, Bay of Blood, which is from the 60s, and Friday the 13th stole all the death scenes from Bay of Blood. Is this the, uh, the Mario Bava directed? guy? Uh, yeah, Mario okay. Bava. So we're going to show his movie, and uh, and I'll do a book talk. And we're going to do that at Tampa Theater in the fall as well. Wow, that sounds like fun. Yeah, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. WMNF commemorates Juneteenth at the Palladium Theater in St. Pete on Saturday, June 18th, with an array of black excellence. Featuring spoken word poets, 
Music from Soul Caravan, starring local artists and musical directors Kenny Walker and Vincent Sims, plus other special guests. Expect the best renditions of Earth, Wind & Fire and a soul review all the while connecting with neighbors and friends. Plus, tune in that week to 88.5 FM and the WMNF app to honor Juneteenth with special music, stories, and guests on air. For more information and to buy tickets, go to WMNF.org. So you notice that uh, Juneteenth uh, celebration is going to be at the Palladium. So you gotta place love that, that Paul is very familiar with. Yeah, we love. I've been running this place since 2007. It's a great place, and M and F has done events there off and on over the years. And we're so excited that Juneteenth is coming uh, this Saturday. By the way, um, our friend John Dunn wonders. Um, where can people buy the book, Paul? Oh, that's a... You I should can, have mentioned that. Well, it's at Tombolo. It's at Oxford Exchange. It's going to be at all the book talks. You can get the e-book or the, reg, the actual book from the Big A, you know, which... Uh, uh, the, the Big the, Amazon. Right the Big Amazon. And we're, we're going to take the book around the state over the next six months and get it out in bookstores all over Florida and, and hopefully around the country as the book builds. It's sort of the way you do it, my agent in New York said, treat it like you're an indie band. You've got a hit record, take it out, break it in this market and that market, and that's what we're aiming Are to Are you going to get an old van that's going to be almost breaking down in the Everglades on your way to Palm Beach, maybe, or something like that? I or? think I've lived long enough where a car is not <laughs> going to break nicer down. Car. <laughs> I, you know, everybody's done that, except uh, I'm, I'm traveling in a nice car with air conditioning. And uh, did you... Uh, travel around the state to research this or this was mostly your lived experience and you didn't have to go research uh you you, you'd already well of course the cypress knee museum is long gone so you couldn't research there but but i i did go back yeah uh i mean i had all of this was from memory but i i was at a conference in west palm beach uh we my wife was with me. My mom was with me. We toured around all over the sites in West Palm Beach. I couldn't find a lot of them because. Did you find that city motel you stayed? It, no, it's all gentrified now. Ah. Downtowns have come back. You know, in the '80s, downtowns were desolate and horrible, and uh, now it's. I couldn't even find the location. But and then we drove through, uh, looked for the Cypress Knee Museum. We drove to all the through the Everglades, and so it kind of refreshed my memory. And but I didn't have to do as much research as I'm doing for I'm doing a new project now that's kind of all research oh. so it's kind of fun you have a new book yeah, slowly working, working on okay. it okay can't talk about it, it. Eh, I understand it's okay but I'm doing a lot of research because it's not as much lived experience well as we mentioned uh, this book is starts in in Palm Beach and and West Palm where you also started your journalism career right. how did you uh, end up being a reporter what was the journey to get you there you know I in but back in, I'm so old. I was had, I was in junior high school, not even middle school. And they, uh, they, I wrote a fiction story for eighth grade. And the next year, I found myself in, on the newspaper staff, and I liked it so much. I continued. I was the editor for two years in high school. I went to USF and worked on the Oracle my whole time there, and edited the campus magazine. Student newspaper, yeah. yeah. And, and majored uh, in journalism. Yeah, majored in mass communication mass journalism. And. Yep. Uh, it just, you know, the doors opened really easily for me in that world. So I never even considered doing something else where I might have made more money, Tom. But it was, it was such a fun life, as you yeah, know. Was Nothing fun. was more fun than a newsroom in the 80s and 90s. It just was an incredible place. Plus, it's a job that takes you to places that other 
people only get to read about right. or see on right. TV. Uh, and, you, and, and so, for example, the Cypress Knee Museum. You're a reporter, you stop by there, and he, he's just, he couldn't be happier to see you. You're not just another tourist paying him. He His sees, wife, yeah. They made lunch for me. You know, I came three or four times, and Tom and I got to be close. And I would stop in all these crazy places around Florida, and stories took Looking me there. for stories. Looking yeah. for stories. And, yeah. and, you know, I love that sort of old-world Florida stuff. So, like all reporters. But I was also covering... You were covering cops in Palm Beach, right? I, yeah, I was covering hard news. I covered the William Kennedy Smith trial in West Palm. I covered riots. I was chased by vicious gangs of 12-year-olds through Miami. You know, it was, uh, it, I've just, you know, it took me to Italy and took me to Europe and New York and California. So, it was, and I met all these crazy people. That, yeah. So, it's, you know, giving you a wealth of things to write about later in life. Um, it's not going to make you rich, but it is a lot of fun. Um, so from Palm, when were you in Palm Beach then? Really, right out of college, like late seventies. Okay, and then, uh, but I had interned at the Tribune. It was the economy had gone bad. There was a hiring freeze, so I took a job, you know, an afternoon paper, and uh, then Paul Hogan, the editor of the Tribune, called and made me a cops reporter at the Tribune. And what year was that? Uh, seventy eight, seventy nine. Oh, okay. Yeah, so really, and then I was there for the eighties, the and then moved on to the Times when they started poaching the. Good reporters out of the Tribune. But uh, even as a reporter, you were also playing music. Always did that on the side. That um, was. Did yeah. you, like many musicians, learn how to play the piano because the women liked it? Is that. Tom, uh, I, I was a you, real musician. You're an no, artist. <laughs> I learned to play the piano because my mom made sure that we had music lessons as kids because her parents didn't give her music lessons. Okay. So Thanks, we had a, Mom. We had a piano in the house and we had took lessons, my brother and I both, and he went on to sing on Broadway, and I just was never that talented. I just loved music as a sideline. It was fun. I'm decent at it, but I will never be at the Grammy Awards, and I don't fool myself into thinking I might. But you started off, uh, you had a band in the 80s. Uh, the Pop-Tarts. Uh, the Pop-Tarts. Yeah. Uh, what years? That was kind of, that kind of came. It was, was mid-80s. Mid-80s, yeah. A lot of the reasons we did the Artists and Writers Balls and the other things was that Tampa had all these musicians and no place to play. There was like one bar where you could play. So we would create, we created the Artists and Writers Ball and I would hire seven and eight bands. That's how I learned to book bands. And we really did it so all the cool bands would have a place to play. And it worked. Well, plus back then, so the first Artists and Writers Ball would probably have been around 82. 81, 82. 82, yeah. 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 Uh, you also had this incredible neighborhood called Ybor City. Right. That was not being used. Right, it was empty, and that was empty. That was yeah. the that was what the first book was about, the Ebor City, uh, Cigar City book, uh, because Ebor City was this vast, empty place, and artists moved in because they liked the authenticity of the place and the cheap rent. The cheap rent. Yeah. I had a job, Tom, and I liked plumbing, so I lived in South Tampa and came to Ebor City where I dated my girlfriend and hung out there all the time, but I would go home to a place where the bathrooms would actually flush. Well, I mean, you know? newspapers uh, didn't pay much, but they paid more than being a starving artist. They Let's absolutely it, you did. Know, you, had, you had health care and, you know, regular paycheck. And all that like stuff. That. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, but Ebor, we just started doing things, and we were young and crazy, and uh, things just happened. So, and nobody told us what to do, and we never got a permit, we never... Got, became a 501c3. We just started throwing these giant things, and thousands of people showed up. It, it was incredible. And, and I think one of the things that the Artists and Writers Ball did was bring people to Ybor City at a time when they weren't really going there. 
I think we created, we showed that it was an entertainment district. Yeah. And it kind of became, we hoped it would be sort of an arts and entertainment district. There was a became, couple of months yeah. there where it was it like was, that. It I was. mean, it our actually, old friends, uh, you know, Rick Melby, for example, right. had a studio there for years. Uh, he was a, a great glass artist. Uh, Tons of great artists had studios there, and it, there was a period, yeah. you know, up until maybe the late 90s, 90s mid-90s, yeah. when the city zoned everything wet. and tr- Well, and, and Rick Melby's studio right. ended up becoming the first home for the Tampa Bay Brewing yeah. Company, which I always thought was I a pretty was, good metaphor it, of Ybor City. Absolutely. Know. It just, things, we always pictured bars, restaurants, and art galleries, and it just kind of became bars at a certain point. Well, money talks. But it's changing. I just had, uh, I just had coffee with uh, Daryl Shaw, who's invested a lot in Ebor, who has great artistic visions for Ebor too, and I think there's going to, I see a resurgence of the arts heading to Ebor. That's good. I think he, in fact, has an entire building set aside for artist studios, right. which is a really good sign of, of, of what he has in, in store uh, in his development. Yeah. Um, now, in Ebor City, you were also, and this is, the, again, the early to mid-'80s, you were involved in uh, plays, theater, right. writing plays, performing in plays. Mostly performing in mostly plays. Performing. Yeah. Uh, that was Playmakers? Playmakers was there. I also did something for the old Alice People Company. And, oh, uh, I forgot about the Alice People, and, yeah. And I sort of backed into it uh, because I, my girlfriend at the time was an actor, and she had me drive her to an audition for Cabaret. And they said, oh, we need men. Get up there and audition. And I got in and she didn't. And that was not good for the relationship, Tom. <laughs> that would not be good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you're just joining us, uh, you are listening to Paul Wilborn. He has been a wave maker in the Tampa Bay area for decades. Um, if you'd like to join the conversation, please call us at 813 uh, talk to John Dunn. He's a very happy Lightning fan these days, and he'll get you through right to us. Or you can email us at dj at wmnf.org, or you can text us at 813-433-0885. And we do have a text here from Bubba, uh, who wonders if you have uh, done any work with Pineapple Press. He thinks they have been the preeminent book publisher for many years. Um, Absolutely, and they do. They've done incredible stuff. I actually met the folks who, who ran it, and uh, but I didn't approach them about my Ebor book. I would have loved to, but the St. Pete Press thing kind of came right into my lap and and happened nicely. But Pineapple Press is great, and they've done a lot of great uh, Florida uh, publications. And um, also that, let's go back to that book. It was a collection of short stories based on your experiences in Ebor City. Many of the names were changed to protect the uh, guilty, um, but, you know. I couldn't remember everything either, Tom. Fiction <laughs> works well when you can't remember everything. But it won a Florida Book Award. It did. It uh, did. Right out of the very first book you did. Won the gold medal in fiction in 2019. And, you know, like I say, writing fiction, you get a lot of rejections, and some of those stories had been rejected from magazines. I put some, I applied for a writer's grant, and the the committee just trashed one of the stories I sent it. So I was kind of going, maybe I'm not really supposed to be doing this. Eey. But I put the book out, and then it won the gold medal, and I could kind of go, okay, maybe I am supposed to be doing this. Maybe I can write something else. I can write something else. Uh, they like me. Oh, by the way, uh, Janet uh, texts me and says it's interesting that um, nothing was better than a newsroom in the 80s. Um, I think, really, we didn't realize... Those were the good old days. Right. 
Those were the days when newspapers were just rolling in money to the point, as Janet points out, you were working at the Tampa Tribune, which is not the center of fashion, <laughs> and yet the Tampa Tribune had two fashion writers. One of them was Paul Wilborn. And I spent... How did that happen? I, I, well, the fashion editor, who I, had, I was her editor at one point, uh, had left the paper and said, Paul, you should really take it. It's great travel. And the Tribune was actually... They paid me to be in New York for over a month a year on the expense account, spring and fall. Those were the days. Those were the days. And, and we, we did magazines. They actually sold some ads and made some money off these magazines we did. But it was an incredible run of about two years of in great travel. And in New York, the fashion shows were at every cool spot in New York. I saw all the best clubs, all the best restaurants and places. So it was a great run. And, uh, but then I moved on. Well, uh, we both worked at the at the Tribune, um, and uh, at one point, uh, a relatively insane editor took over, Doyle Harville. <laughs> I say relatively because he did have his he moments vision. of genius. He, he did, he did. Uh, but however, I believe at one point he said to you, Wilburn, you can't be a musician and a reporter. You're going to have to choose. And what'd you say? Well. I couldn't say much right then because he came up to me while I was in the middle of doing a song with my band uh, for some big party with the media. So I kind of just nodded yeah. and, uh, and ignored him and continued to do both. And yeah. I found it worked great. And my right, he, they did, I got to say, they, they supported me, my writing. I gave up fashion when he took over. I started writing a column and then they sent me to Miami to cover a big riot. They liked what I did and I became like their a lead, you know, writer for them, so I got to give them credit that, you know, they really helped my career. Uh, also, uh, sent you to Italy. They sent me to Italy. Let's just say those were idea. different days. That was his idea. I, that's what I mean. He was insane, but also right. pretty smart because he sent you to Italy to write about all the folks in this little town in Sicily who had moved to Tampa and kind of created, in right. some ways, the, the Tampa that we know today. Including my great-grandparents, and uh, who came from Sicily. All of Tampa Sicilians who came between 1880 and 1920 came from four little villages that were kind of like Sicilian Mayberries. I mean, they were little tiny dirt street villages and uh, never looked back. And so I got to go back, took my Italian grandmother with me and stayed with family and just wrote. And the, you know, the guy across the street, the greengrocer was Dick Greco's uncle. And it was really a connection to Tampa. It was really incredible. So it was a good story idea and a good story. Those were the good old Those days. Those were the good old days. Two weeks, and I started in Rome for several days. Oh, my gosh. On the expense account. So Holy cow. So it was good. And so uh, Janet's real question here is, what do you think of the state of the newspaper business today? I think I'm glad that I'm out of it, and it's kind of sad, but I think, you know, things change. I mean, the... You know, the horse and buggy business was a great business until it wasn't. Afternoon and, newspapers yeah. are basically non-existent. Right. Well, and daily newspapers are threatened. What I, what worries me is that we're we're falling back into this partisan journalism thing, which is like you only get your news from somebody you agree with. And I think America was really blessed from, you know, most of the 20th century, certainly the last 50 years of the 20th century and the first few years into this new, in having. Uh, a press that was non-biased. No matter what people try to tell you, we worked for a non-biased press. No one told us to shape a story some way. We covered, we covered everything, and I think 
uh, America's, yes, you can see from like January 6th and other things, we're not well served by the news we're getting now. It's terrible. Uh, if we had a bias, it was the old saying, uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Right. Now, some people today would say that's bias. But I, I, I tend to think that that is the kind of mission that draws journalists. You've you got to have a mission if you're not going to make a lot of money. Right. We wanted to see you know, society improve. I really think we were in journalism to try to write about wrongs. And, and you know, we weren't so concerned about what was going right all the time. But we, we also, journalists were, we were mainstream people. We were not sitting there saying, we need communism or we need, we kind of wrote about what was in front of us. Yeah. But uh, the idea that somehow mainstream journalism was biased is just a modern day lie, really. Yeah, well, it, it started with Spiro Agnew, yeah. let's face yeah. it, it's just only right. gotten worse Be, ever since Kill then. the Messenger is a, still, a, still a good... Yeah, well, and you we ended up working for uh, a news agency that is pretty pretty well known for being, I think, objective, unbiased, and that's the Associated Press. Right, right. Um, and uh, how did you end up there? Uh, why the Associated Press? Uh, I needed... Uh, <laughs> you needed employment. I, I needed a job. Oh, okay. I, was, I was in Los Angeles and, uh, you know, having my midlife crisis out of town, Tom, which I really recommend to yes. everyone out there. It's less witnesses. It's better. And uh, But <clears throat> I worked, I was working for a legal newspaper daily, which was kind of cool. But AP hired me to be a California, Rome, California forum and out of Los Angeles. And uh, it was a cool experience for about a year and a half. Uh, two years, really, I think. The last two years I was in L.A. Cover any celebrities and... I, I, stuff, I got to meet, uh, you know, the governor, Schwarzenegger. I uh -huh. got to meet uh, all sorts of celebrities. I covered a lot of celebrity funerals and, and weddings. I was at the tr a trial that was with uh, Marlon Brando's last lover, who was a tiny little fat uh, Filipino lady who had been his caretaker. You know, in L.A., you just never know what you're going to stumble <laughs> on. It was full of stories. Well, you talked about the uh, celebrities that you met, but you met one... That's turned out to be pretty important in your life. <laughs> I met uh, my wife your at a party. Wife, yes, she was a, in promoting an indie movie at a, and there was a guy who had been Michael Jackson's publicist, who was a big publicist, and he could tell his clients if he invited me that oh, the AP was at our event, so I got invited, and she walked in, and I I was smitten. She wasn't so smitten, but I worked on it, and uh, and that was the end of two thousand two, and we got married in two thousand four. Persistence pays. That's right. Uh, by the way, you're listening to community-sponsored commercial-free radio. We're powered by volunteers like me and listeners like you who support the station. You can show your support by going to WMNF.org and hitting the tip jar to make a donation. But I would like to say thank you to everyone who donated to our show last week. Because of you, we not only met our pledge, our, our goal of 2200 we exceeded it by 50%. So thanks very much, everyone. For the, and, but we'll be back in a few months. So those who didn't contribute, save your penny so you can do it again. Um, if uh, you would like to call in, enjoy this conversation with uh, Paul Wilborn, please call us at 813-239-9663. He'll get, John Dunn will get you right through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. We are talking to Paul Wilborn, who's been a wave maker in this area in the art scene for many years. Uh, he has a new book out called Florida Hustle. It's available at Amazon and in all of your independent bookstores that you, you favor. But before you 
you wrote this book, you've been at the Palladium for 15 years, but before that, you were the art czar of Tampa. Well, Steph, I was dubbed the art czar of Tampa. You were I never claimed to the be media. the art czar of Tampa. That's a fake, fake, the, fake, fake, fake news. That was fake news, Tom, fake totally news, yeah. fake. I got hired uh, from L.A., when Pam Iorio got elected mayor, and it was, I knew Pam and I liked her and she liked me, but I had never given her a dime. I hadn't worked on her campaign, uh, but I was kind of looking to come back to town. Uh, my mom's still here. I have great connections here. And Pam offered me a job. She said, I don't want you to be my media guy. Would you be interested in being my arts guy? And that came out of what I had done at Ebor in all those years ago. Yeah. So, and you were in LA at that point, right? I was in LA at that point, and she was building an administration and, uh, and she brought me back, and it was great. And four years later, I uh, moved to the Palladium. And it kind of changed my resume from journalist to arts guy. And that business is still thriving. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the th I noticed that you called her Pam. And, you know, I call her Pam because I've known her since I feel like she was a child. When right, she first ran right. for office, I she think was she was kid. like 23 yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah. It was maybe 25. Uh, but I re you told me a story once because you were... <laughs> You were at your first staff meeting as the arts czar. What was your actual title? I was a creative industries manager. Right. And what did you do, Paul, at that first staff meeting? I, I, I said something to the mayor and called. I said, Pam, da-da-da. And, and several people corrected me to say, that is the mayor. That's you the address mayor. her as the mayor. Yeah, in this room, she yeah, is she's the, the mayor. mayor. And uh, so I learned my lesson quickly. So what were your, uh, what'd you do in that job? What were your, what were your goals? What'd you try to do? You know, really, uh, one of the things they said was, can you make Tampa as artsy cool as St. Petersburg? Because St. Peter had come from nowhere to be this cool art scene. <clears throat> and, you know, and you, single-handedly. Didn't do it. You know, <laughs> uh, I just, you know, I started trying to talk to artists. We put things together. We had, uh, you know, gallery shows and we got a trucks that drove around Tampa with artists filled in them. But I didn't really have a lot of, there was no budget that came with this job. So you kind of did a lot of talking and did a lot of trying to bring people together. Uh, and four years later, I just moved to St. Petersburg. <laughs> <laughs> but Tampa, honestly, is hitting its stride right now. There's a lot of great things. I mentioned Daryl Shaw and his efforts, the Gobioffs. Uh, there's arts initiatives. I think Tampa is really coming into its own. Uh, sadly, a lot of the things that we hoped were going to happen in the 80s and 90s are actually happening now. Uh, so I give, I think the city is going to see a real resurgence of arts. Is it, what kind of a role do you think the government can play in helping to create an arts scene, though? It's, you know, there are a few things that they can do uh, that, that I think St. Pete did really well, which is they welcomed Duncan McClellan, the artist from Tampa, who I had tried to get into a housing situation in here for a gallery, and it did, the city just wasn't cooperative. But the city of St. Petersburg helped him get this beautiful gallery open in, in the warehouse district of St. Pete, and that launched an entire district that's now filled with artists. So government can help, uh, and also, you know, Giving money to support the arts with no strings attached is a great thing. Uh, but otherwise, I think government just needs to maybe bring people together. That's the, that's the role. what we're seeing in Tampa right now, at least that you have mentioned, is really not what the government is doing. It's what private individuals are doing, either the Gobioff through his foundation, mm -hmm. Daryl Shaw through his development. Uh, what else do you think Tampa should be doing? Well, I, you know, what you... What the mantra is in St. Pete is what's driven, driving all of the development in St. Pete is that it's an arts town. 
and all these museums and artists who live there, it's arts are good economic development. And I think, you know, the business community recognizes that. And I think that's what we're seeing is an effort to, Tampa's got economic development. It needs the arts underpinning it. And that's what we're trying to bring up now. It probably also helps that St. Pete tends to be very uh, focused around, say, downtown and uh, Kenwood, the Grand Central. Tampa seems to be very kind of, its art scene seems to be more dispersed than St. Pete. Am the, I wrong about that? There was never any there there in Tampa. We hoped Ebor, well, Ebor yeah. might be that. But and for about 20 seconds, the Channel District looked like it might be. Might be. There was Artists Unlimited there for a little while in the 90s. And a studio. There were Alice St- People's St- Theater there. It was a, yeah. a theater. My friend ran down there. But And we still have a theater company in the Channel District. But right. But uh, it's Tampa it, was... It got overwhelmed by development. It was one of those things, you know, you, yeah. the artists always come in because of the cheap rent. And then people flock to see the artists, and then the rent starts going up. Developers come in. You're seeing the same thing happening in Wynwood right now in Miami. Oh, yeah. Wynwood is, is being overrun by development, by new condos and chain stores. But there's another Wynwood that's being developed outside of there because why? They need a place to go. They need a place to go, and the rent is cheap. Yeah. I think, St. Pete, there's a lot of concern that new artists coming to town cannot find a place to live. It, the you know Florida is just in that mode where real estate has gone so crazy, rents have gone crazy, and I do worry about where artists and other people who don't have a lot of money are going to live in our in our state. Well, I think at one point you were talking about trying to create sort of an artist village uh, when you were with the city of Tampa. But that I mean, it, it must be very difficult to pull together the resources to make that happen. It was not that hard to do at that point. The problem was the city just didn't completely agree with it, and the real estate values were going so crazy in 2006 and 2007 when we were trying to do it. 2005, if you remember, was kind of like today. It was leading up to the big mortgage crisis. But the state had donated all these houses. We had empty houses just on the edge of Ybor that were all linked together around a courtyard. There were about 20 houses. It would have been a great, and there was a brick building we had. If we could have sold those to artists, it would have been something today. And now it's just, you know, it's just so a regular place. It wasn't really a lack of resource. It was more a lack of just lack of vision, will, lack yeah, of leadership, yeah. or, or whatever. And the real estate prices were so strong, the city saw an upside to just selling it. You know, at top rates because yeah. the city was getting the revenue. Well, now it's going to be very difficult because the real estate prices are so out of control. I that's mean, that's what Daryl Shaw was talking about. I mean, even though he controls it, and the real estate prices, construction prices yep. to to build an art studio, how do you? And to me, the arts, the Palladium works as an economic business, as a business. You know, you've got between donated money and shows, you need to make the arts work. Uh, those kind of projects have got to have some economic viability. You can't depend on donors every year to keep you afloat. Well, the, you know, when you talk about supporting the arts, what's the best way to support the arts? It's to buy art. Buy art, go to shows, go to shows. get out there. And, and along the way, it doesn't hurt to write a check if you like what's going on. I mean, I think what we forget in America is we've made this deal that other countries haven't made. We will pay lower taxes, but we need to... And, that, so the government doesn't support the arts. We need to step up and support things that we care about, nonprofits. That's our deal in America. We pay less taxes than any place else in the developed world, but we have that responsibility. That's the deal. Right. But people don't necessarily know they made that deal. Right, right. But now you're working uh, at the Palladium. You've been there for 15 years, which I think the Palladium is a good example of some vision right. that leaders 
had and executed. So tell us a little bit about how the Palladium uh, came to be and how it's changed since you've been there. Uh, really, when we built all these performing arts centers in the 80s, in Ruth Eckerd, the, what's now the Straz, the Mahaffey, quickly the community realized that they couldn't afford to do shows there. You'd go broke trying to do a show. So some visionaries in St. Petersburg, the Huff family and others, uh, realized they needed an affordable professional venue for the community. They found this old church. The Huffs are William R. Huff. William R. Huff a, and, and Hazel, his and, wife. And Hazel, who was also a, a tremendous supporter of right, the arts. So right. one of the wings at the St. Pete uh, Museum right, is right. named in her honor. They endowed a professorship in history at USF St. Pete. You can't keep up with all the great things it, that they did. Yes. and uh, Very rich, but also very supportive. And of very the visionary. Yeah. And so the Palladium, they bought it, they set it up, they ran it for about 10 years. It never quite became what they wanted it to be, and they handed it to St. Petersburg College to run. And because they had a president. Right, who was an entrepreneurial guy. Kind of crazy, kind of like... Uh, yeah. Like Doyle. But he had vision, and he did yes. things. And did. so... And so he took it over. They hired me. Or became a... A department, department of the college. Of the college, yeah. But they, a $5 million endowment was established. We started doing business. The endowment spins off some money, and we found out that within a couple of years, we had to get through the crisis, the financial collapse, but by 2010 and 11, we were in the black, and we've stayed that way since then by being exactly the community place. And, and being entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurial, and also hiring all local talent. I mean, we, we sell out shows with local talent. And, uh, but you also have, you have students uh, who work there? We have there? students, interns, we, and you know, national shows come in. We had Sandra Bernhardt. We were part of a Pride Festival uh, in St. Pete this weekend. They, had two, they rented us for two events, both community, great community events, and we're the place where those things happen. What else do you have coming up at the Palladium? I know we have this Juneteenth. Juneteenth is coming up with MNF. We're going to do the birthday party in September with MNF with, I think, Bright Light Social Hour. I don't know if I'm breaking that news, but that's happening. And we've got a whole summer. You heard it here first. You heard it here first. And He's we making a, waves, ladies and gentlemen. A whole summer of shows in the nightclub, comedy, jazz, blues, uh, just burlesque. It's just something fun all the time. How did, how did the Palladium get affected by the uh, coronavirus pandemic? We shut down for almost a year and a half, a little more than a year and a half. Uh, but I was able to keep my staff paid. We had a rainy day fund thinking the place might catch fire. It turned out it was a different kind of it fire. It was a pandemic. Uh, but this, we were able to come back, and it's, it's really still just now finding its legs. Really? But, you know, we got some help from the Shuttered Venue Grant, and we're going to and the city donated. We've, we're going to come out whole. That's good. So, yeah. Um, if you are just joining us, our guest today is uh, Paul Wilborn. We only have about four more minutes left in this show. Paul has a new novel out, his very first novel called Florida Hustle, and he has an event tonight. Paul, tell us again about that event. For those That's who were not listening earlier. 7C Music at 7 o'clock, and it's put on by Tom Below Books, but we kind of got a bigger venue with beer and wine and a lot of seating, and it's a guitar store, a magnificent guitar store in uh, South St. Pete. On 22nd, and you go to Tomblo Books for details. And I'm doing Oxford Exchange on Sunday afternoon in downtown. So, and I would say that you're releasing the book tonight, but actually the book is available right now if you go to Amazon. It's correct. It, yeah, we it dropped uh, it dropped last week, and so this is the first book talk. But the book went live uh, middle of last week. One of the things I liked about your book was the journey through uh, Highway 27, which is <laughs> one of my favorite uh, yeah. parts of Florida. Uh, because it really is, even to this day, 
it reminds me of old Florida, right? Is that is that is that what drew you to that? Yeah, I, I've always loved Highway 27, and I used to drive that way from Tampa to West Palm. Just it was not the fastest route, but it was the best route for me. And I still, you can still get a feel of old Florida there. Uh, but and I was on that road a lot as a reporter. And you also have um, uh, in the book uh, a, a great character, the uh, Seminole Indian chief. Did chief. you happen to know any? F- any of the Seminoles back then yeah. before? I know, first it was bingo. Right. Remember that? I mean, it goes back even before that. It was tax-free cigarette stores. The Seminoles started selling tax-free cigarettes. And where we go in the yep. book, I, the, the Seminoles used to have just like a little gas station restaurant right off Alligator Alley. Yep. And I went there a lot. And so I added a motel to that place, too, because they needed a place to stay. But... You know they're planning the big casino, and there's Seminoles still operate a casino in Glades County to this day that got built in the mid '80s. Yes, and they're still, and of course, Gators make an appearance in this. Absolutely, uh, a Florida a Gator novel wrestling without, here there because yeah. uh, there actually were Gator wrestling going on back then. I, I guess they still do Gator wrestling, don't yeah. they? The Gators have no dialogue in this book, but they are there, <laughs> <laughs> and they are scary. They are scary. <laughs> and now, I want to go. I don't want to leave this without talking a little bit more about. Eugenie Bondaro, your wife. Who's in Paris as we speak. Okay. See, that is what I'm talking about. She is modeling for Balenciaga. She got discovered while making, uh, after, the, after Conjuring came out, and she was the villain. And she scared the designer for Balenciaga, and he had to have her. And here she is, a full grown-up. This is, she is not 19. She is a fully grown woman and uh, modeling in New York and Paris. And uh, she'll be back in, she's there now. She'll be back in July. Any movies or TV things we two. can talk about? Well, we can talk about uh, Interview with the Vampire, which is, will be out this fall. And she's in the pilot of that. And then a big project, which I can't name, but it'll be so big. It's going to be big. It's going to be big. It's going to be big. Um, Around Halloween. It's, uh, they say that there are no second acts, but I think you and Eugenie have both proven that there are second acts. Keep doing your stuff, and Keep it's doing amazing your what thing. happens. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, like you and Janet. <laughs> <laughs> well, retirement is a wonderful thing. I mean, I have been a WMNF listener for decades, and it's really great to be volunteering here. It's a real privilege to be able to bring on folks like you. And you know, we had Tom Gribben on here recently. Right. Another St. Pete Press guy. By the way, Tom Gribben agrees with me that you need to have a Beach Comes to Downtown concert there with Saltwater Cowboys and he knows all the other musicians at the beach where he can uh, hook you up. Okay, so I expect that to be happening very soon. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, Coming up... uh, Next, NPR News, followed by three hours of music with Harrison Nash, The Lulus from 3 to 6, Freak Show from 6 to 8, The Dream Clinic from 8 to 10, In the Groove from 10 to Midnight. Please listen in Friday morning to our friend Cam Dilley.